0: Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today's content, I think, is sort of on the personal side, mostly. Uh, we want to begin with, um, the sad acknowledgement of the death of, of Leah Chase. Um, who's,
1: at, at age, was it 96 or 98?
0: Yeah. And uh, we just wanted, we thought you might like to hear her voice again, and we did interview her uh, briefly at a James Beard Awards event um, after mm-hmm. Katrina. In, two,
1: in, two, in 2006. Okay. The James Beard Awards dedicated their entire 2006 program to all the chefs in the New Orleans community who right. had suffered so much the year before in 2005 as a result of Hurricane Katrina. But yeah, ever, and then
0: they more recently honored her, by the way, uh, the queen of occasion.
1: But the other, the other, the other person interviewed with Leah was Frank Brightson, and both Frank Brightson and Leah Chase said, "What we need is for you to come to New Orleans because we're open for business."
0: Yeah, she's so sweet, <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, great lady, beautiful, both inside and out. Anyhow, let's listen to Leah. We've got a real treat here. We've got Miss Leah of Dookie Chase, an absolute institution, an iconic restaurant in New Orleans. And she's going to tell us she's coming back. Yes, I'll be back about middle of July, and we'll be back strong again. It just... We had so much water. You know, we had five feet in some areas, two and a half feet in my dining room. So all of that had to be lost everything in my kitchen. So that has to be released. But we're going to do it. You know, that's the only thing I know, honey, is cooking. So I'm going to be back there feeding the people again. Well, everybody knows this is why you go to New Orleans, eat your food. Yes. all oh, calories. Right. <laughs> Miss Leah, thank you. Thank you so much, dear. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here with.
1: Me. So, as you can tell, there was no quit in this lady. No,
0: knee, knee, knee high off. to a, knee high you know, to a grasshopper, yeah,
1: and uh, t- and took over running the restaurant from her husband Dookie when he passed away, right? Yes, and
0: yeah, and, it was founded uh, by his father,
1: and, and and she was she was there. We heard almost every day.
0: Yes, even when she was in her nineties. Oh, for, for
1: all those years, they camped, they camped out across the street until the building could be rebuilt. Yeah, it's a wonderful uh, story. Uh, so, yeah, it's a great story, and we thought we would bring that to you. And what, what do we say? Rest in peace. Yes, Leah Chase, a, a life well lived, touching so many people.
0: Next up, we have something to really celebrate, our very own Adam Knurzer, who is the d- Dean of Drinking for uh, Pittsburgh's local wine school, Cow uh, Partners. And uh, he just, he just, we interviewed him before the finals in, um, the, in for the U.S. Um, but he won that. He's for,
1: never for, won. For the, no, no, let's not forget to mention what it was for: for the South African Wine Cup, exactly, which is a competition sponsor, sponsored by the winemakers of South Africa. Runs only every three years, and, and we, we knew we knew that Adam was doing very well. Yeah, and and he
0: beat out all those. Those all those slimy West all those slimy <laughs> West Coasters, huh? San Francisco psalms, yes indeed.
1: So, so he so he was he was the only uh, he was the only one outside some of some the only West entrant Coast, yeah. from outside of the West Coast in the finals, and he was on he was packing and on his way, just, just as we interviewed him for the program.
0: And he won. <laughs> yeah, well, well,
1: we, I was going to, I was going to keep him in suspense.
0: Oh, come on! <laughs> and, and next, he's off to South Africa uh, for the World Finals for the of the final, World Cup. For the, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: he's going to, he's representing the United States in the finals of some alias from around the world. And
0: uh, well, let's listen to this. It. Such he's
1: gonna, a nice He's going to bring home the bacon again. I'll bet.
0: Yeah, well, let's listen to what he says.
1: D- during the ugly years of apartheid in South Africa, the re- the rest of the world reacted by not buying and drinking South African wines. Something something changed along the way, and I'm go- I'm going to ask uh, Adam uh, spell spell his last name for me, though. Curter.
2: Is that pretty Adam. Adam? What is? It's Kniezer. Technically Kniezer in German, but I suppose along the way people have Americanized that.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so Kniezer. Mr., so, Mr. Kniezer, what happened to South African winemaking and what happened to you that both of them intersected so strongly?
2: Sure. Well, I guess... Uh, Starting with the first part of that question, what happened to South African winemaking is that, well, the end of apartheid and a democratically elected government, uh, Nelson Mandela at the helm, uh, is what really shifted things. And for the first time in really decades, foreign investment was pouring in, foreign interest was happening in the wines, and uh, you know there was a there was a rude awakening for South Africa. There was a competition held in Cape Town where they were pitted head to head against Australian wines and South Africa was just roundly trounced by the Australians. And so it really sent shockwaves through them in terms of an industry to understand that, hey, listen, you know, we've been complacent for so long, and we've been dealing with outdated techniques and and fellow practices and the wrong kind of materials, and that was really the start of a of a new awakening. Um, that coalesced with a dismantling of the KWV, which is basically a government organization that was a cooperative that, was involved in price fixing and quotas and things like that really falling apart and then just becoming sort of a cooperative seller as opposed to a regulatory body. So all of those kinds of things um, to really distill this into a, uh, a sound bite really is what happened to, to pave the way. And I suppose my journey into South African wine started in my first visit to the Cape in, I suppose, 2013 now. Uh, so it was a trip in my former life and my former industry and former job that brought me down there. And my burgeoning interest in wine uh really just dovetailed nicely with that discovery and and the combination of the land, the people, and understanding that there was a lot more to the story than what we see on our shelves here in Pennsylvania in particular uh got me intrigued. And so that's where it all started.
0: And certainly a lot more than you saw on your shelves in Indianapolis or Indiana if <laughs> you were a native Hoosier. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, that's that, that's very true. And and to be frank, you know, I don't come from a wine background. I don't come from a family that has any interest or tradition in wine. I mean, I come from the typical family of Hammond, Indiana, which is a lower middle class industrial area. Yeah, I, uh,
0: I was a, in I was um, worked at the of education in Indianapolis Museum of Art for almost four years. You so drink
1: I spent a lot of time you, there. you drink a lot of wine, but probably not, but not South
2: African.
1: <laughs> probably not South African. <laughs> well, if
2: you know where Gary is, you know where I was from. Okay. Oh, got it, got it, okay. And I think that tells the story. Yeah, right well, he <laughs> says so, so you,
1: so you couldn't wait to move out now. I want, I wanted to in, plug something in here bec- just just for the hell of it, because we interviewed someone about oh, five, eight, five or eight years ago good grief. Who, who made wine vinegar. In South Africa, and it was very, very good. Oh, that was good! It yeah, was very, it very sucked. good wine, wine, vinegar. But, yes. but we, we said, "Why did you get into the wine vinegar business?" And he said, "Our harvest totally failed, <laughs> and we made vinegar yeah, so instead of we made vinegar instead <laughs> of wine."
2: I suppose that's the equivalent of lemonade from lemons, right? Yeah,
1: I guess so. Something. <laughs> the, the, the name was Rosenfeld or Rosenstein or something yeah, like right. that. I don't know. Okay. Well, well now, the the reason that you came to us is actually twofold. First of all, your occupation, just presently, which, which is being a sommelier and being an expert on wine and teaching about wine, focused on South Africa, right here in Pittsburgh. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll move on to the exciting part about the competition you're a part of.
2: Sure. So I, I suppose, you know, my, my, my day job, right, is at the helm of the Pallet Partners School of Wine and Spirits uh, at Dreadnought Wines in Lawrenceville. And so sometimes there's a bit of confusion because there are several operations operating under one roof. And Dreadnought yes. Wines is a distributor of, of wines, but Pallet Partners is the educational entity. And Pennsylvania requires that to be a separate, distinct uh, entity uh, for legal purposes. So that's why there are different names and different missions behind each, but we all kind of work together, uh-huh. obviously, and so what I do is I engage in public classes on wine here in Pittsburgh, uh, so it really runs the gamut, but my goal at the helm of the school, now that I've been there for about a year and three months as of tomorrow, uh, is to shift the focus a little bit away from the classics and sort of broaden people's horizons a little bit, and I focus on inclusivity in wine, I focus on diversity in wine and helping people understand that you can find wine at any budget and enjoy it, and you don't have to have a prerequisite set of knowledge in order to enjoy it. We don't feel that way when it comes to things like rum or vodka or beer, but for whatever reason, we still think of wine as this stodgy, unapproachable beverage, and I think in some ways it suffered from a certain exclusivity, and I'm very much the opposite, because I don't come from that world, and so I understand the barriers to entry. And so those are the kinds of classes that I teach here in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, last night I did a class on Cape South Coast in South Africa, but the night before it was women winemakers, uh, topics like Bolivian wine. I have a Tour de France series where every month we do a deep dive into French regions. So that's a big part of what we do in addition to actual formal educational processes with the uh, London-based Wine Spirit Education and Trust, or WSET, programs. Uh, we offer those in wine spirits and sake here at our facility in Lawrenceville, and then, in, in addition, we do all sorts of private engagements, corporate engagements, so if you have groups of, of a certain size and you want something uh, private, we do that as well, so that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis here in Pittsburgh.
1: Now, the, ac- the acronym that you mentioned, that, that, that's a qualification as well, as well as an educational progress, I guess, and you've, and you've got a couple of stages of that under your belt already.
2: Yes, that's right. Uh, from the WSET, I have completed my level three in wine and my level two in spirits, both with distinction. So I'm I'm on the track with that, and sake is the next one. And then in terms of the wine, uh, I'll be doing the diploma as the next stage uh, in my educational development and progress.
1: Now, how do you, how do you compare that to the There's uh, some kind of circle of sommeliers, or oh no, master sommelier. Ah,
2: is, is uh, yes, the court, the court uh, of master sommelier. Go ahead. So, yeah, so I, I've actually got experience in both that Track as well as WSET. Because, yeah, he's certified, you
0: certified know, some with this
3: court. Yeah,
2: yeah, so I am a certified sommelier uh, with the Court of Sommelier, so that was my level two, which I completed in the fall of 2017 in Montreal. Um, I just happened to be in Montreal because I was playing in a hockey tournament there that weekend, and I thought, well, let me kill two birds <laughs> with one stone, and uh, that's kind of how I set that up. But I did that first because I came... Uh, completely out of the industry. I mean, my last job was in clinical research software training. I was working in clinical trials, kind of flying around the world, uh, being a, ba- a paid public speaker, essentially teaching people how to use the software in trials and wine was sort of my passion on the side. But I thought, well, if I have to get into the industry, you know, what kinds of qualifications can I get? And the court was the first thing that I had really come across that I felt like I could achieve on my own and do on my own, because it's not necessarily a study program as much as it is basically a certifying body at a certain level. And so that's kind of where I got my start. And after I got my certified is when I approached Pallet Partners and said, you know, listen, I have got a background in academia and education, and I've got this interest in wine, and now the credentials to back it up. Will you have me. And Mm -hmm. it just so happened that the person running their school was leaving, uh, to take a position at WSET, in fact, he head up the funny. spirit division here in the U.S. So it was just a happy circumstance of timing.
0: Yeah, you, You're such an interesting guy. I mean, you speak uh, French fluently and also Portuguese and Spanish. Um, you, you're very loose. I mean, you do, you do all kinds of things all at once.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's true. I, I was a French major at Vassar College, uh, which is where that all you know, started, and then I, I lived in Paris for about 14 months uh, during that period at, and then studied at the Institut d'Études politiques de Paris. Sciences um, Po is typically how it's referred to. Uh, so that's where where that really comes from, and I'm in France at least once a year to kind of maintain that. and you know, see friends and and visit and that sort of thing. So that's where that happened, and then I picked up Portuguese next. uh, I originally wanted to do Italian, but it didn't fit into my schedule, and so that's where Portuguese (laughs) happened. Uh, So that happened, and then Spanish after that. And so uh, language has just been something that has been a part of my life since I picked up a French book when I was 13, and I just have always had a a bit of an accent, I suppose.
0: You know, I've encountered so many Fronica in Indianapolis when I worked there. I mean, I don't know why. And then there's
2: French lick, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I suppose Larry Bird's the most famous thing to come out of there. Uh, and I'm not sure that that's anything Francophone, right? But uh yeah, no, it, it's true. And, and, and I, I didn't have any language training in elementary school other than, like I said, I was an eighth grader who picked up a French book and decided that that's something with, you know, in which I, I had an interest in, and it just seemed to, to click and made sense. And there was no looking back from there.
1: <laughs> well now let's come back to the moment then, yeah, the, and, the, and the thing that really attracted our attention, tap. which is which is a competition in which you're already doing very well and but, but there's a next step and a step after that. Tomorrow maybe to come. he goes off. <laughs> there you go. So so yep. tell us tell us about tell us about that guy.
2: So there is the uh, Wines of South Africa, which is sort of the marketing organization behind the wines uh, in South Africa. They put together this competition called the Sommelier Cup, uh, which happens every three years. And the first time that they did this was in 2010. And so in December, uh, we got notified at Dreadnought that they were launching the competition anew. And it's open to sommeliers who work in restaurants or those who work in a retail capacity. So that's where I really fit into this competition, because... You know, I don't work a restaurant floor. I've never worked a restaurant floor, although I am a sommelier by title, right? So my role is as somebody in the retail aspect, as part of the distributor. Because so part of my role there at the school is advising and helping bring in new wines to the portfolio. And then, of course, subsequently selling those to consumers as well as restaurants. And so um, what they did is they organized these master classes and then examinations afterward all across the U.S. Um, between January and May. And I want to say they had roughly 150 uh, participants here in the United States, and they would take the test after the master class, and the top six scorers make the semifinals regionally. So that's here in the United States, but I'm uh, fortunate enough to have scored high enough to be one of those top six, uh, competing for a spot uh, in Cape Town in September to represent the United States against the representatives from Canada, Germany, Sweden, uh, places in Asia, Kenya, et up. Uh, yeah.
1: Now, what's the yeah. what's what's the thing that's happening next week? There's a part of this that's, that's happening just almost upon us.
2: Yes, so Monday is the uh, regional semifinal. So I leave tomorrow, uh, and the, the everything really starts kicking off on Sunday evening uh, in New York City uh, with a tasting uh, with some South African producers, and then Monday is the big day of uh, the uh, you know American semifinal where the 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 six of us. We'll have a full day of examination. Uh It's uh, three parts. Uh, the first part is a written examination, so it'll be uh fifty short answer questions. Um, you know, questions like name three wine estates uh, founded before seventeen hundred in South Africa. Oh, wow. Things <laughs> like that. I yeah, and then yeah. So I, I'm I'm excited about that. And then there is a uh, food and wine pairing, which I just found out yesterday oh, uh, no. is going to be related to pizza. <laughs> Which I did not expect, I oh will my. say. I was expecting, you know, formal dining scenario, just like the the, the court test that I took or something like that. But uh, you, as it turns you, out, we will each be assigned a South African wine. Do you know whether, what kind of
0: pizza it's going to be? Because that's kind of important to the wine. <laughs> I mean, is it so white I pizza? Guess. Is it, is it uh, margarita pizza? Is it... <laughs>
2: So it sounds like that'll be up to me to decide. I get assigned the wine, and then I have to choose the appropriate pizza and toppings and then be judged by five South African wine producers on (laughs) how my pairing suited their palates and my rationale behind it. Uh, So that's that's part two. And then part three is a blind tasting. I'll have, I believe, 20 minutes to do four wines. Uh, So I'll have to, you know, match my tasting notes as best as I can to those produced by the actual winemakers. I guess the great variety, guess the region of production, vintage year, et cetera, et cetera. So pretty standard in terms of uh, the activities to which I'm used to, uh, based on the training that I've had. Uh but it's all with regards to South Africa, which is a unique thing uh and one for which I'm very excited.
1: Now uh, if you win, if you if you if you top the six, you get to go to San Francisco then?
2: Uh to Cape Town actually.
1: Oh Cape Town. Okay. Cape
2: Town. Oh, yeah, yeah. So so the the winner uh, of this particular co- competition happening on Monday uh, will be the U.S. representative in Cape Town uh, in September, on the 21st of September, in fact, uh, competing for the title of, uh, you know, Woe's those, uh, Somalia Cup winner 2019. But the good news as well is that they're also sending five people along with the winner, and they give priority to those individuals who make it to New York. So uh-huh. I'll be going to Cape Town regardless, uh, which is great. great. Uh, I just hope to actually win here in the U.S. and keep Pittsburgh the city of champions, as it has been. So that's my goal.
1: Well, you, so, you, so in a way, you sort of won already, right?
2: You know, you know I, I will say on a, on a personal level, I feel like I've won already. I, like I said, I've only been in the industry for about a year. And so for me, I feel very proud to have come this far. And I would say so. You know, the, the, the people against whom I'm competing are all based in San Francisco and Napa.
0: Yeah, so you, the, the press they release me. that Deb <laughs> sent out is that you were the only finalist from outside of outside of San Francisco, United States, American finalists outside of San Francisco, and here you are, right yeah. here in our Pittsburgh backyard.
1: Now, now uh, let me just sneak in one question that's always puzzled me about about South African wines, and that's. Pinotage and Pinot Noir are not the same grape. Sounds like they, they ought to sure be. sure are not.
2: Sounds like it's they
1: ought to be, but they're not.
2: No, no. Pinotage is actually a crossing, uh, and and there's a reason for the confusion with Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir is one of the parent grapes of Pinotage. Uh, oh, okay. Created, All
3: right.
2: Yeah, it was it was created in the 1920s uh, by a professor at the University of Stellenbosch, uh, Professor Abram Perold, uh, who apparently was a lover of Pinot Noir. But the problem was that the Mediterranean climate in which most wines were grown at the time was not well suited to the grape. And on the other hand, they had another grape that did grow very well there uh, by the name of Salso, as we know it. But at the time in the Cape, it was called Hermitage for reasons that are yet to reveal themselves exactly to me. Uh, And so that's where the word Pinotage comes from. It's the Pinot of Pinot Noir and the Taj of Hermitage, which we now would know as Salso. And so that's where it comes from. And Just like any children, it's nothing like either of its parents in a lot of respects, Mm -hmm. and only now are we really starting to figure out how to vinify it properly, which is understandable considering that the first commercial vintage uh, for a pinotage was 1959, and it was released in 1961 under the Lanzarac label, and so we've got less than 100 years under under our belt in terms of understanding how to work with the grape. So a lot of the terrible examples that we have seen on our shelves have given it a less than stellar reputation among a lot of people in the wine community, as well as among consumers, but there are so many examples to which I can point today that just I think would do well in front of those kinds of people to uh, to change their minds a little bit and maybe uh, stop them from being so ardently against uh, grapes that we have very little familiarity and understanding of at this point.
1: Now, Hermitage is, of course, a famous, famous name of, of wines from the from the northern Rhone area, I think, in France.
2: That's right. But, and those are syrah based wines, which is why it's very confusing yeah, <laughs> that and, uh, that then, the name has uh, been applied to the Sante grape.
1: And then there was a then there was a wine they they used to call Grange Hermitage or Grange Hermitage, mm-hmm. as the Australians would say. And the, and the French made them stop doing that. <laughs> yes. So, so yes. Like, so,
2: absolutely.
1: So they could, on, so, so they could only. Call it Grange. I couldn't call it Hermitage anymore.
0: Wine after my own heart. Grange. That's a
1: story. for another day. Yeah. We, we, we must. We must let this young man get, get yeah. ready to pack.
0: Before, before we let you go, though, I, when I asked you before we actually started the recorder, um, were you nervous? Uh, and you had such a, a cool answer. Could you repeat that?
2: Sure. Yeah, I, I, I have cautious. Uh, confidence and optimism about this because i I'm I never served well by nerves and I don't think anybody is. And if I remember that I do this because I love it, that gives me the energy to carry through. And I think as long as I do that, I'll be in a good spot. I know I know my stuff pretty well and I, uh, I just look forward to it. And as long as I share in that excitement, I think that's going to translate very well to my performance. And if there's anything that I've learned Years of public speaking and, and engagements like that—you fake it till you make it. You do it with a smile and you do it with confidence, and it'll serve you well in the end.
1: Well, you, well, you <laughs> must, you must call us and let us know what happens around. Oh, about, please, around, yeah, you absolutely around, have to. Around, around about next Tuesday or Wednesday, we hope to hear from you. And in the meantime. God speed and our very best wishes for a successful performance.
2: <laughs> well, thank you very much, and like I said, I hope to continue the legacy of Pittsburgh being the city of champions. and I'll keep you posted for sure. You'll uh, know more,
0: Adam. You sound like a champion. Thank you so much.
1: D- did we really think Adam was going to win? Yes, we said we said so. Sure we wished him well, yeah. and uh, we said call us. So he sent he sent us an email on right on, on on Monday, I think. So, so we, so we knew we had to include him in this this week's program. Already, already, we we didn't know we'd have quite so much to celebrate. So, as as Adam said, Pittsburgh, the city of champions, wins once more. We're delighted, and we'll we'll have another champion from Pittsburgh right after the break. So don't go away, because we'll be right back.
2: Podcasting services for On the Menu
1: Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, our our next
0: champion is... Uh, Leia Liz who is uh, co-founder of 412 Food Rescue, uh, which she's going to tell us about. And every time we turn around, she has another new venture to improve on um, the, her efforts at eliminating food waste and hunger. Um, uh, she's so well-spoken. I'll just let her tell you the latest development with the 412 Food Rescue's Community Kitchen. It's always a pleasure and an exciting event to talk to Lea who, who is a co-founder of and runs, essentially, 412 Food Rescue. There are so many developments. Every time I turn around, Leia, there's something new that's going on. Let's just recap briefly for listeners who don't know the, the basics of this. Uh, what does 412 Food Rescue do? What's its mission?
4: Yes. Thanks, Anne. So, but Forward to Food Rescue was founded as a direct response to the fact that we waste 40% of our food supply. So that's almost half of our food supply. And that's perfectly good food. And on the other side of that, we know that so many of us, 40 million Americans, are food insecure. And also food waste is one of the leading causes of global warming. It is second only to road transport when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. And so, you know, food waste is a big problem that can solve, you know, if we solve it, it solve two other big problems, hunger and environmental sustainability.
0: Exactly. They're closely linked. Yes. Yes. And you have demonstrated this. How many, I always love hearing how many thousands of pounds that you've rescued.
4: <laughs> yes. So we're in the millions. We're at six million pounds after four years. Um, And we are also now in four cities aside from Pittsburgh. We are in Philadelphia, Cleveland, and San Francisco working with nonprofits there to scale food rescue.
0: Right. Now, you, you have all this working because you have also not only a food but a tech background, don't you?
4: Yes, so I graduated from Carnegie Mellon um, and have always wanted to figure out a way how to use technology for good.
0: And you've done it. <laughs> and You have how many food heroes, which you call them?
4: Yes, so we have an app, as you know, that works a lot like Uber, where we mobilize drivers to transport the food that's donated to us. And um, the app has been downloaded about 10,000 by 10,000 people. So, you know, and and over 2,500 people have successfully completed a food rescue.
0: And they're so proud of it. I love being in gatherings where they're all there, and they're so pleased with how they're doing and with what they do. And, and it's, it's very rewarding, isn't it?
4: It's very rewarding. And you see your impact right away. I think... One of the most interesting things is everyone's reaction when they see the food that they are rescuing uh-huh. and how beautiful it is and how, you know, how without them, that food would have gone to the garbage. And they are always in shock at that. And then on the other side of it, they deliver it to either a housing site or a senior center and everyone is so happy to see uh-huh, them because, yes. you know, it's all this beautiful food. Yeah.
1: Na- Natalie, Leah, me explain, explain how it works. S- somebody, yes. some, somebody, somebody who is going to generate it's surplus right. food has a, has a role, and then the food heroes have a role, and then yes. the, and then the hungry people have a role. Ex- explain, yes. explain each one of those. Right.
4: So how For one to Food Rescue works is that we have technology, and what we do is we work with food donors. So that when they have food that is available, you know, whether it's Giant Eagle or the convention center or catering event or even a restaurant has surplus food, they can let us know. And you can let us know through our website. And then we match that available food with a nonprofit that can use it and distribute it. And once we make a match, what we do then is we alert through our app our food rescue heroes. These are our drivers. And our drivers see on a map the available food that, that, that they can rescue, much like an Uber driver sees all the available passengers. Right. And then they can opt for one that's right for them. You know, it could be on their way home from work or, you know, yesterday I was in between meetings and I saw a rescue pop up that was exactly on the route. And so I took that rescue (laughs) and, you know, each rescue just takes 20 minutes and it was on the way to where I was going anyway. Oh, so, God. you know, and then I saved some food that day and um, helped, you know, feed someone that day as well.
0: Now, you have a new development. As I said, you're always having new development. But this is one that you've been talking about and um, Jamilka has been talking about for a long time. tell us about your new food waste-reducing community kitchen in Millville.
4: Yes. So about, you know, in 2016, um, Chef Jamilka Borges and I Um, We're talking about how great it would be if we had a kitchen where we can just stabilize some things um, so that we could extend its shelf life because sometimes we have so much food we can't even distribute it. Um, So we said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had a kitchen where we could make pickles or make pasta sauce out of all of these tomatoes and, you know, that was 2016, and three years later, that dream is finally come, coming true. We're launching a food waste kitchen in um, a, a neighborhood called Millvale here in um, the Pittsburgh region. And it's a kitchen designed to stabilize um, excess food so that then we can just redistribute it in another form, such as pasta sauce and pickles and maybe sauerkraut. Oh, great. <laughs>
1: now, what was, kimchi, kimchi. Now, was it a professional As kitchen kimchi? before, Leah? No, so,
4: this is um, this kitchen is a, in a converted moose lodge. So it's an <laughs> old wow. moose lodge. Yeah, so talk about reuse. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, and, and we converted it into a commercial kitchen.
0: And did, how did you fund that? Was it crowdsourced or what?
4: So that was funded through um, what's called the Uprise, which is an innovation kind of, um, I would say, competition here in Pittsburgh, and we won that Uprise back in 2016.
0: Oh, wow. And now, who, who knew? I mean, what, what new populations would you think you're going to be able to uh, reach with this kitchen?
4: So um, we will be able to distribute more food, as yes. you said, because we will be able to stop food from spoiling. Right. But also, uh, some of the things that we're planning for this kitchen is, you know, we're going to create some ready-to-eat meals that can be food stamp eligible or SNAP eligible um, and, you know, make it a healthier alternative to what people may have access to that's less healthy um, and it will have the convenience that everyone needs. Uh, so that's that's another project. So it's really making more food available for everyone.
0: Okay, and who's going to be preparing this food?
2: Um, we just hired a new
4: culinary manager, and um, and he was trained at another beloved um, Pittsburgh nonprofit, Manchester Bidwell.
0: Oh yes, good. Yes, so
4: he recently graduated. Um, his name is Edward Anderson, and he's going to be the culinary manager of that kitchen. But what's great is that we're going to work with local chefs and hopefully chefs from all over the country where we will have community dinners once a week and they will cook dinners that's free for everyone.
0: Really? Is it going to be in this facility? The, the, uh, yes. it's
4: It's going to be in this Millvale kitchen. So it's going to be pay what you can. And our local chefs and our national chefs will, you know, just spend the day cooking whatever is available. So it's a little bit like chopped. You know, one day they might have cabbage and rice and chocolate truffles. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no,
4: <laughs> and they have to make a meal out of it.
1: <laughs> no, it's it's starting to look a little bit like uh, the re- re- refectories.
0: Yeah, the massive refectories. Massive That's
4: really the model that we're looking.
0: Sure. Okay, now he's he, wonderful. Do you know him, Leah?
4: I don't. So if you could introduce that, that would be. He's so <laughs>
0: catchable. I, mean, I can't even catch him. I've known him since nineteen ninety-six or something. If you'd,
1: if you'd like to sort of outline what it, what it is you'd like him to know or like him to do, send send it to Anne. I have his email address. And I'll, yeah. uh, and I'll send it and He's I'll very busy, though, send, on I must I mean, caution he, he's, optimism. He's, he's so good. busy. I mean, what, what can we do? We can at least try. Yeah. I mean. Yes,
4: right. That would be great. Well, his I wife, would love that.
0: Yeah, his wife is actually taking a very active role in um, in, in the repertorias. I mean, she's yes. she's running that that program. It's called um, Food for soul, or is it? Yeah, food, food for, for soul. soul yeah. Yes,
4: and I know that I, I've heard from the food grapevine that they are looking for partners in in the U.S. and I would love for Pittsburgh to be, you know, in that running.
0: Sure, oh, that not? would be great. Um, How, yeah.
1: cool? How cool would that be?
4: And yes, I and mean, they were
0: looking at New York, and somehow that never happened. So I don't know why. Or, or, right. Or yeah, but they're in London and
1: Paris. Yeah, but we we had, a, we had an appointment to go to the one in London, and if you remember, Something they, call, happened, they, yeah. they called at the last minute and canceled our appointment, and we never did find out why. Yeah, I don't
0: know what happened.
1: Uh, but but I, I, I suspect some kind of city bureaucracy was in there somewhere g- getting in the way of them getting off the ground the way they wanted to.
0: Yeah, but they're running smoothly now, anyhow. Um, ah. Now, uh, uh, a lot of people might want to get involved um Locally, and yes. don't know about it, and also um, other cities that might hear this because yes. we go around the world, um, and right? It's internet, um, how, just give us instructions for how to contact this right. at the program,
4: right? So, if um, locally, you know, of course, in Pittsburgh, you can download the Food for One to Food Rescue app. Um, and if folks in San Francisco and Cleveland and Philadelphia want to know um, what to look for in those cities, um, they can go to FoodRescueHero.org, and we list all of our partners there and give everyone instructions on how to download the app for their city.
0: Oh, it's great. It's a great idea. Uh, and the time has come, right? Definitely. It has. <laughs> what Besides spreading or extending, what else do you have in mind? You always have some brilliant thing on the back burner.
4: (laughs) I think it's that we're focusing right now on this kitchen and making sure that it grows and, you know, gets gets its launch, um, hopefully sometime in the summer, um, and that the community knows about it. And, of course, we welcome other cities and, you know, those who want to learn about food rescue, and we're going to welcome other chefs who want to stage in our food waste kitchen. That's um, yeah, to figure out how to transform food waste.
0: So um, there are a number of organizations that actually um, give instructions for cooking, right?
4: Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. Well,
0: I just think it's wonderful. You know how I feel about this project. And we are lucky
4: to have you here in Pittsburgh, so you can Uh, see it (laughs) firsthand.
0: Oh, Leah, you're, you're great, and keep going with it. And let me know if you need anything.
4: We will. Thank you so much, Peter and Ann.
0: Thanks, Leah.
2: Podcasting services for on-the-menu radio are provided
1: by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net.
0: Well, speaking of kitchens, but that's not... The only thing I want to say is, almost every day you pick up a paper or look on your uh, online, and you hear about uh, all the negatives of immigration and all the the agonizing over immigration. Here is a positive note: uh, we're going to be looking to Anne Francesca Gass's book called Herod "Heirloom Kitchen," and she talks about. These all the advantages we got, all the the culture and heritage we got through these recipes and family stories from the tables of immigrant women. So let's take a look at the bright side of this spreading of, of immigrant culture throughout our great nation. I was just so thrilled to get this book in the mail. Nobody had given me a heads up, and it arrived. It's Anna Francese Gas and it's called Heirloom Kitchen. And I could tell you what it's about in one sentence, saying that it's recipes and so forth from uh, immigrants to the United States, women immigrants, but that doesn't encompass this whole book. I mean, it's about so much more. Uh, welcome, Anna, and uh, congratulations on a wonderful job.
5: Thank you, and thank you for such a beautiful pronunciation of my maiden name. (laughs)
0: Um, Most
3: people
5: don't pronounce it so beautifully. It must be your Sicilian roots.
0: (laughs) That's probably it. Uh, (laughs) No, I was reading, particularly opening about the the meatballs and how you, Mm -hmm. and then following through how you watched all these uh, cooks, the women, immigrant women, or women uh, with backgrounds. Maintaining their classic heritage recipes, and I got so envious because I tried doing this with my grandmother, and uh, it, it was impossible. <laughs> she, she would, you know, I stood there, and she would say, "I'd say, well, you know, like when is it ready?" And she'd say, "When it feels right." <laughs> you know, <what> I mean, right.
1: <laughs> and so it's it's a lot of work. And how, how much does you put in? And, and what's what's the word for it? As much as it needs. This much as <laughs> That's the but other one. There's a word for that. There's a word for that in Italian. Yeah, I forget. Right?
5: Um. Yes, I mean, well, it's funny. It's 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 pretty much what I did. Um, you know, forty times with forty of these women, and I will tell you, my mom was probably the most difficult because obviously. She was comfortable with me and she's my mom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really had to drill into her. Okay, mom, that pinch needs to become a teaspoon. (laughs) You know, that handful has to become a cup. Like, (laughs) let's get this in. Let's get this. But, you know, it was a great, it was a great, um, starter course with her because, you know, she knew what I wanted to do. At that point, it was really just a project between the two of us never knowing what this was going to become, but we really did it. You know, she would say, oh, the breadcrumbs need about a handful of, of, excuse me, (laughs) the meatballs need about a handful, so I would make her take her hand and put those breadcrumbs in it, and we would measure it. So... That's kind of how we got the meatball recipe perfected, and I will tell you, and she won't admit it to anyone probably, but now when my mom makes her meatballs, she pulls up the recipe.
0: Oh, you kidding. That is funny. <laughs> oh, no, she
5: does, because she said, you know what, I love it now. They always come out perfect. They're always consistent. I don't forget anything anymore. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so it was such a service to my me and my girls and my sister, but also to now my mother, And then, you know, doing this with my mom and how rewarding it became, that's when I had this aha moment of, wait, I have so many friends that are also first generation from all over the world, maybe I could provide a service to them where they're going to get their mother's recipes written down and I get to learn how to make all these traditional delicious international recipes that I've only had in restaurants, now I get to get it from the source. (laughs) <laughs> so an email went out to all my friends, and it was like wildfire. Everyone wanted to sign up their mother um, oh, or grandmother, that's and uh, that's kind of how it all began.
0: Yeah, I mean, your subtitle is Heritage Recipes and Family Stories from the Tables of Immigrant Women, uh, pointing out, first of all, that they're all women, um, uh, and, and also that... They come from a a wide variety of of countries, immigrant backgrounds. You've divided it up into Europe, Africa, Asia, Central and South America, and the Middle East. Um, But in in all the stories that you go into, you also mention always the, the... kind of the stamina of these women the character of these women's the ties to culture and family so that it's a very moving book as well
1: no no i do um, have a, i do have a bone to pick what uh-oh Eng- england's not in this oh that's true Scot- <laughs> okay i will explain Scotland, Please give me a moment to
5: explain Scotland's so in my there. project was word of mouth and I just went from kitchen to kitchen based on who would take me. Mm-hmm. And I did meet an English girl uh, in my town. And I said, oh, please, can I please cook with your mother? And her mother got cold feet. Oh, no. <laughs> so my one English granny backed out. But if you look closely, my woman from Iraq, Sherry, okay? okay. She was raised in Bath. Oh, there oh, really? you go. Oh, that's yeah. good.
1: Well, that's, that's so good. okay. You're, you only can have half right. a
5: bone to pick. Only half a bone. <laughs> no, you're,
1: you're you're permitted. You're permitted.
5: Okay, <laughs> because she does make a mean Yorkshire pudding. She told me we didn't yeah. put it in the book, but you look at her and it's 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 lovely because you look at her and she looks Iraqi, um, but when she speaks, She's she good. does have an English accent, which is wonderful. And her grandchildren call her Granny. Uh-huh.
0: Good. 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 Uh, well, you, the, uh, you the Yorkshire pudding, is, my was from Yorkshire, and that's one of the things I never get right. <laughs> it's, it's about I know, it's actually, it looks like something easy to
1: make, but it's very difficult. It's about the only thing my mother really knew how to make she, well. She nearly,
0: well, you, you faulted her then when she started making it in, in uh, muffin oh, tins. Oh,
1: yeah, that's, that's terrible.
0: Because <laughs> it used to be just the one, you should see the pans that... The, it's supposed to be and beat up, and the, you know,
1: banged around. The, the concept, the concept of Yorkshire pudding, is is worth just including, including in the in this program because people from Yorkshire, where I come from, they're they're, they're considered to have short arms and long pockets. <laughs> but but the, the deal the deal was this because you the the roast you cooked on Sunday had to be had to be served again for dinner on Monday. So you, so you couldn't have people eating too much of it. So, <laughs> so the idea was you you've, you've filled up the family with Yorkshire pudding, with the with the gravy on it, and, and you did that as a, like a first course. And, th- and then along came the meat and potato course after that.
5: When you're already half full. <laughs> when, you're already
1: ha- when, you, exactly. yeah, when you're already half full, exactly.
0: Now, the, the women, I think, um, that you profile, the, the stories that you've uh, set out for them are definitely inspirational, and I think that was one of your goals and visions for this book, inspiration, right?
5: Well, this is what I'll tell you. I kind of fell backwards into this because, as I just mentioned, you know, I really wanted to collect recipes. I said, that's, you know, that's going to be the scope of this project. And what happened was such a, you know, beautiful accident that when I was cooking with The very first woman I had signed up, which was Nellie from Greece. Yes. In the kitchen and you know, she's cooking. You know, what do you really do when you're cooking? Yes, I'm taking notes and we're we're looking at all the different ways uh, to make sure that this comes out right. But I just happened to ask her, So Nelly, you know, what made you come to America? Why did you leave Greece? Uh So she starts telling me her immigration story and I'm sitting there and I said, Wow, you know, this woman comes from Greece. I came my mother came from Italy but their stories are so similar. You know, I wanted a better life. I wanted my children to grow up in a land of opportunity. Um, I knew there was more out there in the world. So it was this common theme. And as I'm writing the recipe on one page, I start jotting down her story on the other page because I'm just so enthralled in what she's saying. So then when I got home and, you know, I'm I'm writing up the recipe, I just kept thinking about her story story and her words. And I said, you know what, this is just as important as the recipe because food is culture and culture is food and it's our history and it's where we come from and why we came from. So when I put it up on the website, you know, to share the recipe, I shared her story. And when I started getting responses from people, they were responding just as much to the story as they were the recipe, much like myself, to say, wow, my grandmother also came from Greece and not the same place, but same reasonings. I mean, it was so funny when I was cooking with her. I said, you know, Nellie, why do you like to cook? And she said, oh, well, you know, when I was a kid, there was nothing else to do. <laughs> we didn't have electricity. We didn't have a television. So I spent my days in the in the kitchen with my grandmother learning how to cook. Um,
1: well, now you've got, so, you got people from all over I mean, not, Right. Not, and when not I just, went to the next house, Greece.
5: you know, and it didn't matter where they were from. Themes were all, all the, the same, same. You know?
0: yeah, and they were all strong women. Yes,
5: you know? and it's not like I picked people based on oh, I only want the strong grandmas, or I only want this. You know, the only the only criteria I had when I was going around was that they were a woman, they were an immigrant to the U.S., and that they they liked enjoyed cooking, that they were a good cook. That was my only criterion. And I would get in these kitchens, and they would start telling me their story And every time. I was, I, it was like I hit the jackpot every time because every story was so dynamic. Every and and everyone was, so was different,
0: though. I mean, it was the, the same themes uh, like strength and independence and seeking freedom, all that was there. But their history was all kind of different. I mean, some of the stories were absolutely amazing people escaping war and people, you know, uh, just wanting more education. You know, they're just all over the board. I I just thought it was fascinating. Each one has its own uh, point of view, and you you have to sort of read all of them. if you're using this cookbook, you're going to be caught up in having to read each one of these stories.
5: Well, what I said, and I said this to my editor, I said, I want the cooks of the world to buy this book but I don't even think you have to like cooking to buy this book
3: because
5: right. you could just sit down and get immersed in in the stories. And everybody has a story. and You can learn something from every story.
3: Right.
5: And for me, you know, as a child of an immigrant mother, I didn't even really appreciate what my mom had done until I started really reflecting on her and these other women. You know, right? if you think about now, before you take a trip somewhere, You know, you ask all your friends, you go on TripAdvisor, you make sure you know what restaurant you're going to go to when you get there, which hotel, how you're going to spend your time. These women came here completely blind. They had no idea what they were going to come, you know, encounter, the challenges, the language barrier, whatever it was. They just left. They just left. And that, to me, in itself is so strong.
0: Yes. And, And I love the vintage photos you include, too.
5: We asked all the women to give us ephemera on um, something that they found in their, you know, drawers or in their history that they thought was meaningful. And the things that they brought me to photograph were just phenomenal. I mean, someone brought me a St. Christopher's pendant because he's the
3: oh, patron yeah.
5: saint of travel, and her mother gave it to her before she left Scotland. And someone else brought me their passport. Um, from yeah, you know, so, it those, so many yeah. things.
0: Yeah, uh, you, have, you have your own passport photo, right? You came over. Yes, as my infant? editor.
5: Yes, because I am technically an immigrant. I was about a year old when I came here.
0: <laughs> Amazing. Well, you were an immigrant.
5: Yes, I was born in Italy. Um, my story is is unique in the sense that my father is American, my mother is Italian. So um, I was uh, an American bro- uh, born abroad. But I am, in fact, also an immigrant on my mom's side. So I'm I'm the best of both words, so to speak.
0: (laughs) You you know, uh, there's some interesting culinary tips throughout here, too. I mean, I even owned a a Greek restaurant in Philadelphia, and I didn't ever think that making um, the uh, the phyllo dough, that if if you were doing it authentically, you wouldn't have used butter because they didn't use butter. Right. They right. used olive oil. I mean,
5: could... Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, that was something that was that, that they did when they got here. Um, and a lot of women kind of twisted the recipes based on, you know, right now you go into a grocery store and you go into the international aisle or whatever. I mean, you could basically eat from any country. Oh, yeah. But back then, I mean, I, the, I think the Lebanese woman said it best. When we got here, we had to switch pita bread for Wonder Bread. <laughs> there was no pita bread here. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, uh, Lydia Bastianich did a cookbook uh, where she outlined, and I was fascinated with it because um, I I saw the reasons for some of the recipes for my family uh, because they couldn't get the products. And uh, actually Jacques Pepin said that when he came here, you couldn't even get olives that weren't in a can. Right. <laughs> or mushrooms, wasn't
5: it? it? was
1: mushrooms. But we forget mushrooms. those things. We yeah. forget, get, you know, get, so quickly. You could get button mushrooms in a can, and, and, that, that, and that was it. That was it. But Lydia Bastianich
0: wrote this book where she uh, traced the, the recipes, the ingredients, to what they were originally and how they got changed uh, when they couldn't get those ingredients in this country. So that explains a lot of my family recipes to me. Mm-hmm. So Now you can't have a favorite, obviously,
5: huh? Well, this is what I will say. I get asked this a lot.
0: I know.
3: And, And
5: everyone also asks me, which they always say, oh, there must be something in the book you don't like. And I can answer you honestly that I found every single one of the recipes that these women shared to be delicious. And I think that there's a couple reasons behind that. Number one, I think the people that, came to me and said, you have to cook with my mother, uh-huh. knew they had a really talented chef in their mother. Right. So I think I got to really cook with, like, the best of the best of the home cooks. And secondly, before I ventured off on my appointment, I would ask the children, what is the favorite thing that your mother makes that you, that you want me to learn, uh-huh. that you want me to record for you? When, you're at co- when you were in college and you were coming home on the weekend, what did you ask her to cook? So those are the recipes that they wanted me to record. Uh-huh. So the recipes are simply fantastic. Um, if I had to pick a favorite, I'm going to go with my mom's meatballs. I've been <laughs> eating them since I was little. <laughs> but that's not to say that all the other recipes aren't equally as special.
0: You know, I'm, I was so excited. You have a recipe for Nutella. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and our grandchildren are nuts about Nutella. Um, but... This, you say, is better than anything you buy in a jar. And, and I want to prove a point by actually making it when they're visiting so that they uh, can see how a, a homemade from scratch is better almost always than what you buy in a convenience form.
5: Oh, absolutely. And I grew up on Nutella. But, you know, Nutella does have a lot of sugar and it has palm oil. Um, it has something else delicious, in it. But they
0: were, yeah, they What's would, that? there was a scandal about one of the ingredients. I can't remember if they changed the form. Well, it's palm
5: oil, yeah, because a lot of people are saying that palm oil can be carcinogenic.
0: That's
3: it. Um, but,
5: you know, Nutella has not changed their recipe because, of course, that's what they're known for is that particular recipe.
3: Mm-hmm. So
5: what I'll tell you is the homemade Nutella does not take, taste exactly like Nutella. Your grandchildren will definitely be able to tell the difference. Okay. If you're making it for younger children, and and to mentions this in the book um, – Use more milk chocolate than the dark chocolate. Like when she makes it for adults, she uses a lot of dark chocolate because it gets it's you know bitter, that almost yeah.
3: like
5: yeah, it's got a more adult taste. Um, so you're definitely going to want to use more milk chocolate. But my kids love it. It it just has such a pu- like a more pure taste. Well, I'm it's, glad. It's, what I'm is it try. like three four ingredients? It's not much yeah, to Yeah, it. It's really simple. <laughs>
1: what, what's the most exotic the, the, the dish that's in here? I mean, you you have people from the Far East, you have people from Africa.
5: Yeah. I mean, yes, what, I, if I, what, I can tell you without Africa. even thinking about it. Go ahead. Um, Jennifer from Ghana yep. taught me how to make fish soup and fufu. Okay. <laughs> and I had never had either. And if you are from Ghana, those are your staple meals. And absolutely exotic, but so important to people from that region. Uh, fufu, so fufu I would say that's is, definitely the most
1: exotic. Fufu is made from, is it cassava?
5: Exactly. Which, which exactly. is like, their,
1: which is like their, their native starch, I guess.
5: Exactly.
0: Yeah, And, and uh, you said that, I mean, I, I would have picked her for the most interesting also because, I mean, the, the fact that her mother would never eat anyone else's food, only mm-hmm. stuff she cooked herself and then it turns out that she is the same way.
5: Yeah, she's the same way. Her her daughter will say, "Mom, let's take you out to eat, so you can um, you can you know get a night off." And she said, "Oh, why, why, why would I want a night off? I want to eat my food."
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a, a bang up job of this, and, and it's just a uh, it, it's, it's a good resource for understanding um, not only humanity and, and character and culture, but also the recipes are good. <laughs>
5: Well, I have to tell you, it it makes me feel so good. I mean, you are one of the first people to really dive into the book, and it just makes me. It really warms my heart that you really got what I was doing. That you know what it, it what I was trying to express on the page really. Um, you got it. You really did, Anne. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you.
1: And it's a treasure book, of a book. The book is called Heirloom Kitchen. Heritage Recipes and Family Stories from the Tables of Immigrant Women. Yep. no, no guys. No guys in there, but that's okay. <laughs> that's the <laughs> point. Th- thank you so much for oh, joining no, us you. today.
5: Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Too, of-
1: too often we forget just, just how many of us in this country are ourselves immigrants, and here's a great opportunity for us to celebrate that fact with you and to beautiful piece of work in the cookbook as well.
0: Indeed.
1: Anything anything else to say for this program week, love?
0: Well, I just wrap it up with our usual bye-bye.
1: Bye. Bye. (laughs)